0: Of the podcast
1: about people. I'm Daniel Lance. I'm Paul Gilman. And this is Pod One.
0: Davis Burnett knew early on that he wanted to be a police officer. He decided to leave his native California and join the Marine Corps just after high school and eventually ended up joining the Montgomery Police Department as a police officer for seven years. Davis shares his personal experience during that time and since, and the way his views on race and policing have evolved throughout the years. So here's Davis Burnett. Davis Burnett, welcome to Podso One. Thank you for having me. It's it's good to have you, man.
1: Super excited to have you because we connected to Davis through Cody Miller. And Cody's episode was awesome, uh, and I can't wait, and she's had nothing but amazing things to say about you, Davis, and so uh, we're excited to talk to you.
2: That's crazy, because uh, her story is so much more awesome, I think, than my story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she's definitely uh, been through some more struggle than uh, Daniel, you and me combined, maybe. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was something else. I don't know which episode number that was, but I, I strongly recommend
0: uh, going back to what, what, was, what episode was that? Did we call it something or did we you, say Cody
1: Miller? Ah. Uh, it's just
2: Cody with a K. I, I don't remember what episode
1: it was. Uh, Fades for Faith is what we call it. That's right. It. Fades, Fades for Faith. Faith. Uh, yep. Right, her nonprofit.
0: But uh, anyway. Yeah. Cody's awesome. And and anyone she recommends, we're excited to get to know as well. So yeah, man.
1: <laughs> well, uh, it, it's almost like Davis is the grandchild of Latoya because Latoya led us to Cody and Cody led us to Davis. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's right. I got to meet Latoya by the way. I didn't listen to hers, but just listening to Cody's, I was like, I got to meet this lady, whoever she is. So
1: she's uh oh, she's a baller.
2: She's on my hit list.
1: Yeah. No question. Very cool. So, uh, Davis, we're, we're going to bounce around. We don't have to go in chronological order, but uh, can you talk to us about growing up in uh, what I think you would call Central California?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, small town, Central California. Um, by small, I mean 25,000. So it wasn't like L.A. Um, <clears throat> I had cousins from, from L.A. who thought I lived in Timbuktu. Like They hated coming to my house to visit because it smelled like, uh, like a dairy, like a wet dairy. Mm. um, lots of corn, lots of agriculture everywhere. And, um, but I grew up, you know, just a regular kid, small town playing baseball, uh, thought I was going to play baseball one day. And then I had a life plan. I was either going to be a catcher for the New York Mets or I was going to be a cop. And uh, reality set in at about age 14 when I didn't have the grades to play anymore. Oh, (laughs) so I floated enough to, uh, to graduate high school and, and then get out of town. Um, parents, you know, still married. My parents just left after 30 days with me here in Atlanta.
1: Oh, wow. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I had a good childhood, man. Grew up in a church. They were good people. And I just, um, I just had to go. And um, it's not something a lot of people from where I'm, where I'm from would do. They tend to stay home and, uh, and do the things that their dad did and do the things that their mommy did and and just stay there and raise a family. And uh, I had to go see.
1: And so now what I'm did, in Atlanta, Georgia. Like, what, did you, what did your dad do for a living? Uh,
2: wow. So my dad did everything from reading meters for Southern, Cal, uh, Southern California Edison. And then he worked in-house for a builder supply warehouse. And then just as I was leaving home, he was doing route sales for, um, I guess, the same, um, the same builder supply warehouse uh this is back before Home Depot and Lowe's was taking over the world. So right. um, back in the day, kids, contractors actually had to buy their sheetrock from men who sold it at a at a place that just had sheetrock. And <laughs> this is kind of what my dad did. And uh, and he did other things too. You know, I had a grandfather that owned a road construction business. So um I was handling a shovel when I was twelve, um, working all over the uh the mountains, the Sierra Nevada Mountains as my grandfather would resurface roads for the forestry department. And my dad and mom would, would there's a whole family thing, would get in on that.
1: So you, yeah. you grew up understanding what real work was?
2: Yeah, yeah. I didn't do a lot of it, but I did have to work. Um, you know, dad hooked me up with a job one time, laying Bricks. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's not a hookup. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that's more like a shaft, dad. Thanks, man. <laughs> um, and I, I, did, I did tile. I, I started doing tile with a friend of mine. In high school, um, he was several years older than me, and then I did that just before I joined the Marine Corps. And I actually loved that, and I I actually, story fast forward, I did that later in life, uh, in between stints as law enforcement. And um, I just couldn't do it anymore. It just didn't bring me the same fulfillment it did when I was 17.
0: What, what uh, What makes bricklaying a shaft but tiling fun? Like, what's the difference between those two?
2: The weight. (laughs) <laughs> um, when you, are, <laughs> you know, when you're the helper for, for a Mason, uh, you're the guy picking up bricks and like tossing them up the scaffolding. And, um, like if you've ever seen the, the Latinx guys, right in California, they were all Mexican. These dudes would throw like four or five bricks at a time. They mm. tossed them up
1: and they, they were I'd stacked. Have, They're stacked. Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 And they toss them
2: and I'd have to catch them and toss them to the next guy. Or um, I can't remember what they call them, but they're big metal hooks and they would farmers carry um, and they pick them up and they'd carry them from one side of the lot to the other because the, the forklift can only put them so many places. So you'd have to get the brick around the far side or rock and yeah, it's just. Uh, so you, you're fun. saying
0: that there's a stack of five bricks, all stacked, single file, yeah. and you have to throw them up a story. Yes. And somebody all else sc- catches all five. Yes.
2: yep, And then they throw them up the next story if there's three.
0: And, and then you didn't go and become a catcher for the Mets.
2: No, no. Oh, oh, well, let, let's not
1: leave this brick thing. The best <laughs> wide receiver who ever played football laid bricks as a child in Mississippi, Jerry Rice. He That's spent a stupid. ton of time with his dad laying bricks.
2: He's it, not the best wide receiver, is
1: he? <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait wait a minute. You're <laughs> Calif- you're, you grew up in California. Yeah. So, for the uh, Niners?
2: All right, Let's get it out of the way. Grew up in California. I hate sports teams from California. Wow. I hate USC, UCLA. I hate the Dodgers. I don't like the angels and I hate the giants and the A's.
1: It's <laughs> a lot right. of hate. Is there now, any love? Where's a funny the love story. Davis?
2: Do you know where the Mets get their colors from? I don't. The blue what? comes from the Brooklyn Dodgers and the orange comes from the New York giants.
1: Yeah. Baseball it, playing giants. yeah when they left town and then the, yep. yeah, that so that's sense. where they
2: get the blue and the, and the orange from in their colors. And, um, I'm actually following San Diego this year. I don't know if you guys follow baseball, but uh they're an exciting team to watch but uh yeah, I just I grew up hating all things California, just to be different. I've always been a little bit of a maverick, which explains where I am in my life now i think
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Right>?
2: okay <laughs> there's not a dotted line, it's a straight line, it might have some loops, but um, it's connected, so
1: yeah. <laughs> Well, so it's funny. I, I grew up in Virginia and it's Reds, uh, now the Washington football team. It's, okay. and, and the Nationals weren't here when I was a kid. and So I, I chose a, a team out of Florida just because nobody I knew liked teams out of Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right on. But yeah, and Di- San Diego, the Padres are a fun team. Yeah. they're knocking a lot of balls out of the yard for sure. No, no doubt. That that kid that plays shortstop for them, Fernando Tatis. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, I want what he's having. You know what I mean? Like
2: <laughs> <laughs> he's just he's he's that guy this year. So
1: yeah, no doubt. So you wanted to uh, get out of uh, Cali or get out of the town you grew up in, yeah. And you ended up uh, joining the Marine Corps. Yeah. Uh, did you were you, did you know what you were getting yourself into? Wow. So I signed up. <laughs>
2: I signed up for the Marine Corps believing that all young men in America needed to go off to to war and kill the enemies of America and then have a white picket fence with a little house and a wife and two kids and a dog, probably a yellow lab, maybe a German shepherd if you were cool, you know, and that was kind of this dream that I had. Um, but all of that, Paul, was to get me to being a cop, like, I knew what I was joining, um, but I was, I was joining just to bridge the gap. Nobody can hire an 18 year old police officer, thankfully. Um, And so I had to do something just to make it to, to old enough to be a cop. And um, so the Marine Corps was it. And against my mother's wishes, I'm not sure she, we were just talking about this. I don't think she fully understood at the time what she was doing. I was 17 when they signed me over and I had a guaranteed overseas contract. So I was guaranteed to leave home.
1: Wow. Did did that mean embassy or did that mean Japan? What did that mean? So I ended up
2: going to Yakuza, Japan. Um, I went to school of infantry after boot camp. So I was in San Diego. Mom thought, oh, this is great. And I had a girlfriend. By the way, I got engaged at the age of 18 after my mama told me not to. Um, Bought like a $175 ring or something, you know, poor girl. (laughs) She doesn't know how lucky she is. Trust me. And uh, Excuse me. And I went to Japan, Yakuska, Japan, uh, Marine barracks duty. So there was like a hundred of us assigned there. And um, we had security jobs, but pretty much we were just there to, to look really good and, and remind the Navy that they do have a man side.
1: Um, so. <laughs> All right. I, I told this joke the other day because we had a Marine on a, a few weeks ago, but I'll tell it again, especially since you're, you're a grunt. This guy was an Amtrak guy, but you're okay. a grunt. So uh, in the Army, an infantry squad is nine guys. And in the army they're all infantrymen. In the Marine Corps, eight of the nine are infantrymen. Do you know what the ninth guy does? No. He's a photographer.
2: Yeah, okay. <laughs> For posterity's <laughs> sake. I uh yeah. And I love the Marine Corps. It's funny. Um I say I love the Marine Corps because I do. Um but I was a horrible Marine and I, <laughs> I, my guess is, if you know Marines, um, they're 45 years old, just like I am. And they're running around going, I was a Marine. Hoorah, hoorah, hoorah. But when they were in the Marine Corps, they hated it. They called yeah. it the suck. Um, you know, big green weenie. They hated it. All they wanted was out. <laughs> That's the majority of guys in the Marine Corps. And um, I, I'm the first to tell people that I was like the world's worst Marine. Um, boredom, idle, idle work is the hands of the devil. And that was me. And so um, I did a lot of cussing, a lot of fighting, a lot of drinking, and I stayed in trouble. <laughs> so um, I got out an E three. Now Redemption Road, though, I have a son who's twenty four, who's a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. So okay, um, that's that's nice. kind of my payback to the Marine Corps. I'm doing it right this time with him. So
1: so, so wait a minute, Davis. How, your uh, initial tour was what? Four years? Yeah, yeah. You did four, and you and I'm getting. Did you ever make an E four? No. Uh, no, okay. I, I made, I made, um,
2: I went to a board, uh, a promotion board and I was told that I had won. So I was about to be promoted and, and then I let my mouth run away with me with, with an NCO and Oof. yeah. And so I, instead of like riding me up and, and, you know, putting me out of the core dishonorable discharge, they just said, Hey, we're going to take this. You're not going to get it. Mm. And, uh, you know, nobody really lost skin except I got out on E3. Like I never made it to E4 and busted rank. I just could never get promoted.
0: Yeah. And is, what? is that like, do most people make it to E4?
2: I would say most probably get to E4 just before they get out. The majority. Um, now there was, you know, there was outside forces like my MOS, my military occupational safety was frozen for a long time. They just didn't have a need for corporals in, in, in my specialty. Um, I wasn't just a regular grunt. I was an anti-tank assault guy. So it's was frozen. Um, I was lazy. I didn't do the MCIs to get the points that were needed. And then when I finally did do them, it had frozen again. And then when it wasn't frozen, it was a super high score. So I'd been in three, three, three and a half years. And uh, again, I was just about to get promoted and um, just didn't, didn't hold my tongue in check. Didn't hold my temper in check. <laughs> it sounds and I was, like... <clears throat> and I was like a slow runner too. Like I can never get faster than a 21 minute, three mile, which in the Marine Corps, you're, you're less than if you run more than 20.
1: That's rolling, man. 21 <clears throat> minutes, I'd love to have,
2: You give me 21 minutes now, I'm probably going downhill on roller skates.
1: Um, so,
2: <laughs> but back then it was everything I could do. So,
0: yeah. So th- this, uh, stand at the Marines, do you think part of the reason that you uh you know maybe didn't have a great time was because it was was it kind of a stepping stone because you wanted to be a cop long term it
2: it was a stepping stone and and looking back on it now like man when i got to japan the uh the atmosphere was septic um and there's still you're always going to have people in charge in the marine corps there's just it's a different mindset and I can't explain it to other people from other services um because your jobs are different right the ultimate goal of the Marine Corps is to throw people into battle right it's tactical but it's throwing people into battle people are going to die and 18 year old kids need to say okay I'll go do that sir knowing full well they've got a 95% chance of not coming out um the Army has some of that on the infantry side. And, of course, Special Forces guys are willing. But, you know, the Air Force and Navy, that just doesn't compute. Um, they're a lot further removed from the from the edge of battle, so to speak. But um, for me, when I got there, man, there was a lot of hazing. And not just hazing, but straight-up bullying. Um, NCOs, corporals, would, would go in dudes' rooms, and they'd just beat them up for no yeah. reason or some stupid infraction. And then if you fought back, holy crap, you've committed a, you know— You've committed the ultimate sin, and now all the corporals would come in. Um, so I didn't like bullies. I grew up being bullied, um, bad being bullied. So I've, I've had a dislike for bullies for most of my life, and that left a bad taste in my mouth. And so, again, that maverick in me just, just kind of poked his head up. And, um, and then, you know, I'd, yeah, there was some stepping stone moments where I was like, this is just temporary. And so you have short-timers attitude with two years left to go, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> so you're mm, absolutely right. Right.
1: Yeah. Very cool. So you ended up uh, getting out of the Marine Corps, and where were you living at the time? Uh,
2: Montgomery, Alabama. I was so, married to a woman. I, I went to Japan. My grandmother, paternal grandmother, asked me one thing. She said, do me a favor. I said, yes, ma'am. She says, will you please not go to Japan and come home with a baby or a pregnant wife? I said, yes, ma'am how foolish could I be? What's the one thing I came back from Japan with was a pregnant wife who was from Alabama. Yeah. Oh yeah. She was from Alabama. And so, uh, we went back and forth, realized that I didn't have what it took to stay in. Um, but really again, the goal was to go wear a badge. And so this is before the internet, you actually had to send off your applications. Mm -hmm. And so, um, in the, uh, the chow hall sometimes, but usually in the what they called MCRs. I think it would be these boards that would have applications from different police departments and fire departments throughout the U S. So, I mean, man, I applied like Charlotte, North Carolina, Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas, Harris County, Los Angeles PD. That was my dream job for 25 years of my life. Like that's what I wanted to do was Los Angeles PD. Um, You know? And, uh, and so this woman I was married to, she said, I'm not going to be married to a cop. I said, well, I guess I'll be single. Mm. You know. <laughs> so, so she calls me four days later. Hey, I went home to see mama. I went down to the police department. I filled out your application. You have an interview when you get back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so she, loved, like, wow. she, she loved you more so than that's she, she hated the idea of being married to a cop. All right. That works. Yeah, well, I think she loved her mama more than she loved the
2: idea of being married to a cop. <laughs> um, she just thought her mama would keep her safe. And I, mm. I think for a long time, she thought that I would, you know, I would try it or I would just wouldn't do it. And um, too bad for her. That was that was my thing. That was my jam for a long time. So.
1: So you end up being a police officer in Alabama in the location where your wife, uh, your uh, grew up. Yeah. Sounds like. oh, yeah.
2: Police department was a mile from where she lived, a mile and a half from where she grew up in in downtown Montgomery. Yes, sir.
1: Okay, and, and Montgomery is what, the second biggest uh, city in Alabama? Third largest. Third. I don't even know
2: anymore. At the time, it was
1: the third largest. Okay. Behind
2: Birmingham and then Mobile was actually bigger than, uh, than Montgomery.
1: Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Now
2: Huntsville's probably bigger than all of them. I don't even know.
1: Yeah, but Montgomery's a, I mean, for the, for the south, it's still a pretty big place. Pretty oh, yeah,
2: still, place. still 200, 210,000 people, something like that.
1: Yeah, that's a, so. that's, that's a, uh, that's a real police job.
2: Yeah. 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 You, um, I actually talked to a guy one time from, he was in Virginia. He was working for uh, Virginia beach or Norfolk. um, And he had been a police officer in Montgomery in the the late eighties, early nineties. And he said, I'll tell you one thing, you learn how to talk to people when you work in Montgomery, Alabama.
1: And what, what did he mean by that?
2: So Montgomery is a lot of poor people, right? It's the haves and the have nots. There's not a lot of middle and, as in most cities in law enforcement, you don't talk to the middle. Um, the other part of that, I think that what he meant is in the South, especially if you grew up in the, the 80s like I did, 80s and, and early 90s, there was still a lot of segregation. Black people went with black people, white people went with white people, and you lived segregated, right? Schools might not be and public spaces might not be, but there wasn't a lot of intermingling and, and, and hanging out. And so um, for a white kid from from California, I had to learn quick, you know, how to use my mouth and how to speak to people. Um, And a lot of that comes, you know, I'm learning now (laughs) comes from the history of Montgomery uh, in the civil rights era, uh, the post um, Jim Crow era, what happened during Jim Crow, you know, and, and there's still a lot of tension. I'd say in 2020, there's still a lot of tension. But in 1994 or excuse me, 1997 and eight, there was a lot of tension so you learn how to use your mouth and talk to people to get things resolved and um, that or you just you know you police with a heavy hand or you don't police at all which unfortunately i i would watch a lot of guys do after a year or so they just quit and and they'd watch traffic and get paid to to do as little as they could possibly do so
1: yeah it's a, it's a hard job and it's uh i can't imagine trying to be a uh, police chief or commissioner of oh. a police force in a, in a in the Deep South, in particular. Anywhere, uh, but Deep South especially, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, what, what did you actually do in the police force? Were you walking a beat uh, to third start? Third shift patrol car from, from start to finish my entire oh. seven years. Third shift the entire time? Third shift patrol, yes, sir. So, what, what, what hours was third shift?
2: Um, I had to be to work at
1: 9.45 p.m., and
2: I got off at 6.30, 6.45 I'm sorry. Supposed to get off at seven, but we were walking out the door just before seven a.m. every day. Yep.
1: So, was it crazier at ten p.m. or crazier at like three a.m.? Ten p.m. by far
2: is a lot crazier. It's more people awake.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: But yeah, I mean, a Friday night in a big city like that, yeah, three a.m. could be three a.m. could be off the hook.
1: So. So tell, tell us a story that, and uh, look, this is a weird question, but the, the most scared you ever were in those seven years, tell, tell us. Oh, story. wow. Um, so
2: the most scared I ever was in those years, uh, a hurricane was actually blowing through the Florida panhandle. And so the refugees from Florida had come up just before the storm hit, they'd evacuated a lot of the area. And I was on a special detail. And all I was supposed to be doing was patrolling uh, an area called the West South Boulevard, which is a, a very poor area, lots of high crime. That's where all the prostitutes, most of the crack cocaine would be dealt at the time. And um, I was told just to watch the, the hotels because all the hotels there normally had five cars, you know? And on a Friday night, there might be 20 cars and that's all local people just, you know, hooking up at the Holiday Inn, so to speak. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, this night you know, they fill up. And so they wanted us just to watch and make sure that the people were safe who were, who were, you know, breaking into the city, trying to escape the storm. And I had a guy, we pulled over a car um, that matched the description of some robbery suspects that robbed two persons. And um, my partner turned his back on somebody and I turned around and the guy was, was charging at me and he laid me out with, with a couple punches Mm. And uh, when I finally got my wits about me, he had pulled my pistol out of my holster. Oof. And so we fought over my gun for for a couple of seconds. And, um, and thankfully, I was bigger and stronger. So um, he was a trained boxer, mm. which if you've ever been hit by somebody in a fist fight, that's one thing. But when they're a trained boxer, it's a life changing event. Mm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, <laughs> mm. and he had, you know, not wanted to go back to prison on his side. And uh, long story, but I won. I did win, and uh, mainly because I was able to get on the radio at some point. Um, but I'll tell you that I, I stood up and uh, immediately went back to my knees. And after about 30 minutes, I walked over behind a medic truck and threw up in the middle of the road because I was just that's the most scared I've ever been, knowing that my pistol was out. Because, you know, say what you want, but when somebody takes your pistol from you, I don't think they mean to just run off in the woods with it. You know, so yeah.
1: There's yeah, only there's only one point yeah. when they're taking your gun like that. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And I've had some close calls in uh, in cars, but nothing that freaks you out like like that.
1: Uh, you're talking about like high speed chases, that oh,
2: kind. Oh yeah. Of- <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. I mean, I had a, in that same area one night. I was driving uh, an older Crown Vic, like a probably a '95, '96 Crown Vic. That's still the long ones, and um, not the body style that they just retired a few years ago. Right. And uh, it just drove so loose and I was trying to get to some officers calling for help and I couldn't keep it in a curve. And I found myself on a five lane wide road going the wrong way just to keep from rolling. And as I went over a hill, I missed a car coming the other way by mere feet.
1: Yeah, I, I got a, a buddy of mine who's a Virginia wow. State police officer, and he uh, he was in a high-speed chase. He was going somewhere between 110 and 120, lost it, and ran smack dead into a giant pine tree. He's lucky he didn't die.
2: Yeah, no joke. The fact that he's still your friend is amazing.
1: Yeah, it's crazy.
2: Yeah. Actually, the guy that rode with me that night quit the next day.
1: I, I, I was Yeah,
2: <laughs> He was like, I'm not cut out for this. I'm gone. <laughs>
1: I mean, it, so look, protect and serve, right? But uh, there, there are lots of moments where you, you don't know if that's your last uh, yeah. day on earth. And, yeah. and a lot, a lot of police officers. I, I think many would argue uh, that police officers don't get paid enough to do what they do, to put their lives on the line uh, every time they go out. Yeah,
2: yeah, because you don't yeah, ever
1: that, know. That,
0: go ahead. Yeah, that that story of uh, of of get, of it getting pulled out is that's terrifying even just even just listening to um i I do want to ask about the the uh what you were saying about learning how to talk to people uh Mm -hmm. as being one of the important things uh was that sort of formalized as part of your training or was that sort of cultural like you got to learn how to
2: no that's not (laughs) that's not something that the verbal judo right it's what what they used to call it um I love to talk. If you guys can't tell, you're going to have to tell me when it's time to shut the podcast down. <laughs> um, I, love to, I love to take after my mama. So when she hears this, thanks, mom. Um, <laughs> I love to speak. I love to talk to people. I love to get to know people. It's always been you know, my thing. And so um, that has always been just who I am. And mm-hmm. so I, I learned how to, to use that as a tool for me. And a lot of guys, they really have to learn how to talk to people. Um, man, at that time, the education levels were a lot different based on the race. It really was, um, and just you know what you cared about, what what you how you cared about how you spoke. Um, I don't even know, you know, people used to call them ebonics or something like that. And if you weren't paying attention to what somebody was saying what the heart of what they were saying was totally lost on you and if you were frustrated just because you didn't understand or because you weren't trying to hear what somebody was saying you were just waiting for your reply you know your chance to to argue your point um, mm. then people would be upset nobody wants to go to jail and um i remember those time at those times man there was a lot of fighting people in the handcuffs um mm. just again, a product of a time before me that I had no idea. And, um, and, you know, for me, you know, looking back on this now, so this is the 2019, 2020 Davis that has realized that in 1999 and in the year 2000, so 20 years ago, I was having to learn how to speak to people and make them believe that I did care for them, that I was being empathetic for them even though my badge said cradle of the Confederacy on it. So if you're a 35-year-old black man, that means your dad grew up in the 60s, right? I was 24. So if you're 10 years older than me, your dad definitely grew up in the 50s and 60s. My badge said cradle of the Confederacy, right? That doesn't mean a lot to my generation. and certainly not the generations after me, but for that generation and the people before them, Right. What were you, what stories mm. were your granddads telling you about the streets in Montgomery in say 1946 so I had to learn how to get get people to believe that I was empathetic for them that, that I was on their side and not just the white cop you know and so that's a lot of what that is
1: well and, and look I, this is my perspective I could be completely off base here, but if you're going to put that on your badge, you are basically saying I want to remind you of the forties or the thirties or the 18 sixties. Um, I mean, cause you're alluding back to a time where there were, there was, there were levels of citizenry and white people were at the top and blacks were not, they were nowhere near the top.
2: Interesting story about that little centerpiece. It was a centerpiece inside the badge. Um, as, as best I can tell by talking to, to people in the last year or so, um, That badge came out in 1957 or 56, dead in the middle of the bus boycotts. So there was a reason behind that badge, right? Hey, you want voting rights. Hey, you don't want to ride the buses. Guess what? This is the Confederacy. You're going to do what we say, right? And by the way, let's fast forward to the 90s. The guy that I'm talking to, who I'm giving a ticket to, who thinks that he wasn't doing all that bad, all he really knows is that I'm the police in Montgomery, Alabama. am not a cop, not a police. I'm the police in Montgomery, Alabama with a badge reminding you that your dad was beaten up getting off a bus or your dad wasn't able to go to his job at the meal because the buses were, were blown up by the KKK or, or you know all the other things that happened. And or, so, or, his,
1: or his uncle or his great uncle yeah. were, were lynched for even at worse, light yeah. Light.
2: <laughs> but when you say that the badge came out in 1957 or 56, there's no doubt that that coincided with a statement. At the same time, the Montgomery Police Department, the official seal of the Montgomery, Alabama city of Montgomery, put a Confederate flag in the middle of their seal. Mm.
0: So, gosh, that's that's such a doing that in 1956, such a slap to the face. That's exactly uh, what it was. Seems like, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that you're you have an interesting case because you grew up in California and you, you were not an Alabama native. You're mm-hmm. not a Montgomery native. And no. you kind of walked into this police department as a foreigner. What do you think that that kind of outside perspective gave you as you kind of operated as a, as a, as a cop in, in Montgomery?
2: You know, I think that it helps me a lot because I was I was able to talk to guys. And say, hey, I'm not even from here, so I don't subscribe to the things that you think I do, right? There's that learning how to speak to people, that verbal judo, right? Um, and yeah. I meant it. I mean, I know I had my own biases just based on growing up with my grandfather, you know, and or my grandfather's. But <clears throat> it really was different. There wasn't a deep-seated absolute hatred or dislike or distrust just based on somebody's skin. Um, you know, a lot of that was learned behavior post-California, like learned it in the military Mm -hmm. from being around guys. But it definitely gave me a unique perspective at the time. Um, You know, I didn't even understand Daniel at first, like, why does everybody hate me? I'm just doing my job, right? Well, could it be your six foot two, 220 pounds on steroids with a high and tight? Could it be that? you know, and your badge says, I don't like you, (laughs) you know, blouse boots and a big Oak nightstick. It could be all of those things combined. Yeah, Yeah, it probably is. So,
0: yeah. Um, And did you get a sense, like, it it sounds like when people got pulled over, they saw a cop and they were like, you're the, you're the police in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, But what kind of levels of trust were there in the police, you know, especially with the black community Versus levels of like friendship or relationship uh, with them.
2: You're talking about between police and their, and the citizens. There was yeah no. between
0: like you know yeah, regular we, people.
2: We it, didn't do community policing. You know we didn't try to make friends. Um, the mayor at the time um, when I first came on was uh, looking back on it was no doubt a man who who had some racist creed in him. And uh we we weren't there to make friends. And I think that's why we had a lot of um a lot of fighting people in the handcuffs. And by the way, if I if I remember correctly, when I started there, we were still under a federal, I don't know what you call it, but basically if anybody, if you shed anybody's blood, the FBI was gonna look into it as a possible civil rights violation. Like we were being watched by the by the feds, some kind of federal mandate because of trouble they had been in. You know the '80s and, and and earlier in the '90s.
1: Yeah, and and you're saying 1980s, so, ni- 1990s, not 1880s, or no, 1990s. No no, 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 I started there in 1990.
2: Well, January second of 1998.
1: So, yeah, yeah. I, I, And Davis, I know you listened to, to the Chris Young episode. It, it seems like there are parts of Alabama, Mississippi. And I, I don't want to put this on every citizen of those two states. And I, I think I, you could throw Louisiana and maybe parts of Georgia in this, where they just wanted to go back to eighteen fifty.
2: Can I include um, Virginia, West Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, North and South Carolina, Florida?
1: Oh uh, <laughs> o- o- Ohio, Indiana.
2: Ohio. Let's, that, we could go as far as Colorado and Arizona, you know? Yeah. Um, racism's ugly and racism is racism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, listening to Chris Young, as he's speaking, I'm just like, I know that, dude. Like, I've been there. I know those shoes. I, I know those things. Um, first off, shout out to Chris. And I can't remember his wife's name, the good doctor. Lauren. Lauren Young. I mean, wow. His story about the prom. Um, I really want to call that school district like before Christmas and say, hey, how can I help? make sure that there is no special prom this year, you know? Um, like that's, that's on my heart. We'll get to this stuff later, like where I am, but that's on my heart. But Hey, Chris, guess what, man, since your podcast, the state of Mississippi has done away with their flag and I believe they've already put the new one out, right? They voted on the new one.
1: They ratified the new They one. ratified
2: now. it. So it's out. And I think that's fantastic. Um, I was one of the best podcast gentlemen, by the way, I've listened to it in a long time and you let Chris talk and he, he really let fly. And then when he and his wife came back on, I was like, dude, that's, that's it right there. That's the heart of the matter. And, um, but yeah, so much of Alabama was like that. Um, I lived North of Montgomery in a, in a very, a very white bedroom community of Montgomery called Millbrook. And, um, again, at the time, guys, you're talking 1999, right? Or uh, about this 2001, I had a certain district, um, and in this certain district was, was four or five neighborhoods, but this one neighborhood was kind of famous for being uh, kind of the white trash area, you know, what we'd call the white trash area of town. There were no black people there ever. When, the, when, when night fell, black people stayed on the other side of this one certain road or on the other They knew the boundaries of this neighborhood. And, um, you know, over time that has changed, but I, I remember vividly like, there really are no black people here, you know? Um, and it blew my mind it, to this day. It is still, I'm still not used to it. It still upsets my personal balance when I see things like that and they still exist by the way, but, but definitely in 1999, Montgomery was still a very segregated city.
1: Yeah. So uh, Dave, I think That's we'd, crazy. we'd miss an opportunity if we didn't talk about, um, if you were, head of all police across the globe, but in particular in the states we were naming. Yeah. Uh, what do you think the opportunities are uh, and, and how would we seize those opportunities to make policing better and wow. frankly make communities better?
2: Wow. So, um, so you have to know that this is me putting myself out there when I say this, but this is my heart. Um, police and cops are absolutely culpable in the friction that we see today. Uh, when you learn things like um, the, the the Pennsylvania state police was, was ratified and built by people with money to keep um, people who were striking from the mines at bay, right? That's what they were for. And they eventually went on with force to make those people either, go back to work or to never be able to work again because of the physical harm. Right. And so that's what that police department was built on. Um, then you go down to the South and so many police departments, they weren't born out of slave patrols, but so many of the guys who became the first police officers in towns like Atlanta, Savannah, Montgomery, you know, Birmingham, Wetumpka, Alabama, where I last lived, those guys, were used to patrolling and staying up all night because they were the primary people who ran the volunteer slave patrols. Right? And so that's the history of where we come from. And so <clears throat> excuse me guys, if you if you take what his you know his train of thought is and say he trained somebody three years later and three years later and three years later, you know, for years we kept Jim Crow active. So if civil rights if the Jim Crow really ended in 1966, there are people who retired in 1980, right, who were very much a part of the clubbing and beating of people for no other reason than, than being black while walking down the street. I Actually, I knew a guy, and this guy's telling me the story in the gym. He was a, an old retired police officer. I think he retired in 84, and he tells me and this other police officer, this story, he's like, Oh man, we used to just roll down the street with five of us in a car and we get out and beat blah, 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 blah. And he goes for no other reason than being black after dark. What? <laughs> you can't say that. Right. And I told him, by the way, I was like, Hey, Hey guy, I don't ever want to hear that again because I don't believe civil rights has a statute of limitations. And he never came back to the gym. Um, I saw that poor man later, years later, with Alzheimer's, and he has since passed on. But that's the kind of stuff that was being done in the 70s, right? So if that's being done in the 70s, in the 80s, guys who are in charge of police departments remember that, and that's kind of their, their still mindset is still shaping that way. So guys in the 90s are still shaped kind of that way, and in the 2000s, they're still shaped by what was happening in 1960, what was happening in nineteen thirty. So there is a moment right now where we can reconcile with with our past as law enforcement officers, With we can reconcile with our past, right? I didn't do it. I wasn't alive. My dad wasn't even alive for some of this. But we can reconcile with our part that we played in segregation, in racism, in, in all of the racial injustices that we've done. And then when we learn from that, my God, you can't help but have empathy for people and you can't help but look at people different and realize maybe I'm not saying put on kid gloves. Listen, there are some people who are never going to get it. They're always going to fight the man. They're always going to do stupid stuff. And they're gonna, so it's what we called when I was working, you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, right? You go to jail, you got some bumps. God forbid an officer has to shoot somebody, right? That, <clears throat> that's going to happen but a lot of the stuff that we see could be taken care of if we just had empathy. And I think now is the time for us to seize that. But I think that we first have to reconcile who we were, the real who we were, and not this fake history that we've been fed for years, right? Um, Because the history that we've learned about ourselves in law enforcement, about ourselves in America, really isn't history because we don't talk about the ugly stuff that happened the ugly things that occurred. And so that's where I see um, I see an opportunity. I don't know how to get that opportunity out. Uh, I know when I tell people hey I'm on this podcast pod so 1 my friends, former friends are going to listen to this guys I used to work with and they're you know they're going to delete me from Facebook or they're going to send me ugly messages. They're going to disagree. They're going to talk about me because I'm challenging status quo. Law enforcement people by nature are conservative, and conservative people do not like things to change. That's what makes them conservative, right? It's not a bad thing, but there is some change that has to happen, and it has to start by um, what we say in one race uh, here in, in Atlanta is you have to know the story, own the story, change the story. But you can't just change the story, right? You have to know it. You have to own it, and then you can change it. You cannot change it without the other two in those orders. So that was long-winded. I apologize. But no, that's, uh, no,
1: no, very powerful stuff, Davis. Uh, you and I had talked about a month ago uh, so, so we could do this tonight, and uh, you said you'd had an epiphany back in uh, 2017. Can you tell us about your epiphany? Wow. Well, yeah, so um,
2: I am a man of faith. <laughs> I am a man of the Bible. And that all happened in 2016. Uh, But in 2017, I uh, I was studying. I had had stopped law enforcement, and I was uh, just reading through the Bible. God just kind of had me on a break, I guess, is how I would say it. And um, I was reading about this dude named Lecrae. I had no idea who Lecrae was. Uh, For those that don't know, Lecrae is a Christian hip-hop artist. And he's an extremely talented young man. Um, but he had made some very public remarks that he was done with the white evangelical church. And I didn't know what a white evangelical church was. But that was gaining traction. You know, this, this whole, the white evangelical church is bad. The white evangelical church is, is promoting racism or it doesn't stand up against racism. And again, I didn't know what a white evangelical was. I knew I was white. and I knew I believed in the Lord. So chances were I might be one. So I asked some questions, you know, on a Facebook page. And that just led to a a really fun conversation over coffee with like 13 dudes, um, mixed races, mixed socioeconomics. um, And we just had a real conversation about race. And my eyes, it's like man, I had scales on that were being removed. Where I was hearing stories that you would see maybe in a magazine or Reader's Digest, or in a book or on Facebook, about a man who's just slightly older than me, whose dad worked for Michelin for years, worked for the Michelin Tire Corporation. And he was a, a mid-level manager, and he trained every single one of the kids from the Michelin family who eventually became CEO, CFO, CMO, right? All these people, the non-family people that were raised up, they, they all had to work kind of in the plants and on the floor and in distribution before they could go to the home office. And this dude, this man, <laughs> trained all these people, but he never made it above mid-level manager until they promoted him to VP like a year before he retired in 1995. Mm. Well, why is that? If he trained all these people and was capable of of training these people up and even had a college degree, what would keep him there? Well, there's no other reason besides race. And he worked for, I believe it was Michelin, for something like 40 years, 35 years or something. When we read that, it doesn't really elicit, to me, it never would elicit an emotional reaction. But when you sit next to his son and his son tells a story with tears in his eyes or the guy across from you starts to tell the story about how his son was pulled over three times by the same police officer driving non tinted window Honda Civic just because he was a black kid leaving a primarily white neighborhood, right? And the cop even, he didn't say that, but the cop alluded to it. It's like, what are you doing here? Where do you live? Took him home to make sure that he actually lived at this house, right? And that's that's the stuff that, that we don't want to listen to, right? That's that's the real history. And so I kind of had this epiphany that, oh, wow, maybe there's more to this story than than what I've known. And so um, I was a staunch, staunch conservative. I didn't believe the stories. I didn't believe that that race relations were as bad as they were. And then, you know, God just began to speak to me over time that Hey, this is, this is something for you to listen to. This is, this is something that's real, and it's very real to somebody else. And therefore, you should have empathy, and you should hurt with your brother, right? You should, you should love mercy for your brother, and you should seek justice for all people. And so, man, I was in the, that all happened not in that one conversation, of course. But that conversation turned into a group. Uh, we followed a curriculum called Be the Bridge, uh, by a lady, created by a lady named uh, Latasha Morrison from here in Atlanta, and it is a faith-based curriculum. But it's twelve—that's not the twelve-step program. But there's twelve different steps to go through it. Um, and again, it's—it is without saying it in such short way. But it's knowing the story, owning the story, and then changing the story. And that's when I—I I really learned this: um, approximation creates empathy. And so for me to be empathetic with somebody else's plight, I've got to be in proximity to them. I can't read your story on Facebook and just call you liar, liar, pants on fire. I can't read your story in a magazine and be like, oh, that dude's full of crap. It's not really like that in Montgomery, Alabama. Well, how would you know? Did you grow up in an all-black neighborhood? No, you're a white dude, and you patrolled into that neighborhood three times a night, four nights a week when you rode that district. Right, So you don't know what it's like to, to not be poor or you don't know what it's like to be poor and to have absolutely zero chance of getting out of this hole that you're in. And I mean, listen, there are millions of people who were dirt poor, right? Um, friends, I have friends, I have an uncle that all say the same dirt poor, dirt floor poor, sleeping in a bed with six of my brothers, whole nine yards. I made it. You're right, you did. But for every one of the white people that make it out, there's probably, you know, or every one of the every 10 or 20 of the white people, there might be one black person that makes it out um, just because of what we've done in history. And we've created this vacuum that, that kind of shoves everything in one corner. And uh, so that's the epiphany I had. And that started me on this racial reconciliation. And um, yeah, I went to that group. I've read some books and I just uh, continued to read the Bible and, and seek. You know what I call the Lord's heart for people, and um, again, I put myself out there because it's not a popular stance. But um, I talked about being a maverick when I was younger, and um, this is just yeah. who I am. You know, <laughs> it's it's come together. It's just, yeah, I'm 45 now, but it's like, oh, okay, now I see what God was doing in those times. So,
0: well, no, that's man. that's really powerful, man. And uh, I think you know the I think it's. It's easy to minimize, uh, you know, you said that you were a former staunch conservative and, and one of the things I hear a lot from conservatives is is that, you know, getting followed around in a store once or twice or getting pulled over doesn't equal racism or like people say there's, there's systemic racism and then they challenge you and say, what does that mean? I don't see it anywhere. Give me specific instances of it. And I think that, you know, that story of you sitting with those men and telling these these kind of qualitative stories that are, that are hard to track numerically and, you know, aren't going to be reported and, you know, can't be aggregated to statistically prove like racism. Those are the the things, uh, I, I think that you said it best with, you know, proximity equals empathy. And I think that those are the things that, that change your mind. So that was really cool. That's a, that's a really powerful message, um, that you, that you, uh, just delivered, uh, Davis. So thank you for that. I, I have I have another question. Hey, hey before you go on, there, on the before hey, while we're still hey, on it.
1: Hey, before you go to that one. So, Davis, uh, your approximation thing is absolutely dead on. Uh, I, I think it's easy for people uh, to interact with people that think like them, that look like them, that have the same set of experiences, um, and to get to a place where we all feel like we're on equal footing, takes a bunch of people being very, very uncomfortable uh, before we can get to a place of of that equity. Uh, And I I agree, empathy is the key to that. But you first, you have to take a step towards it. And you've made that step. And I think I'm in the midst of of making that step. Um, And I think this podcast is trying to do it in its own small, humble way of, of bringing people on with diverse experiences. And when we can, bring them into my basement Uh, and I've had people in my basement that don't look anything like you, Daniel, or me. And and I want to have more people on telling their stories because I think you're right. It's not going to make us popular, but being popular doesn't lead to anything. No, Uh, being empathetic leads to, uh, better outcomes.
2: Yeah. If I can, Daniel, just real quick, respond to that. Um, I can never, I will never know what it's like to walk into Dillard's and have the police officer in the control tower put his camera on me. Right? I've never ridden my bicycle by a police car. And thought to myself, what's he thinking of me right now? Right? I just, I can throw a luau sign up, you know, a hang loose sign. I could flip him off probably and he'd laugh. <laughs> Job down the road. Try that as a black man. I dare you. Even when I was a police officer. I can't tell you how many times I got a call on somebody for walking while black. I worked night shift for a small sheriff's department and, and I want you guys to hear me. When the thing, went, uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember his name now. The young man down near Savannah, um, Ahmad Arbery. Ahmad Arbery. Thank uh, Arbery, you. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. Ahmad Arbery. Yes. Ahmad Arbery. When I watched the video the first time, whereas most people were like, oh, my gosh, oh, my God, look what happened. He said, oh, my God. I was like, I could put us on a certain street. I could name the retired deputy DA investigator. I could name his son. I could name the black kid who got shot. I could name the investigators that would come. And I could name who would tell me to go home and shut up and the DA will take care of it. In the Mm. place that I used to work, the county that I worked in, that's it's it's just the way it is. Like. People of color do not get the benefit of the doubt most of the time, law enforcement wants to say they do district attorneys want to say they do, man, there's listen, thousands of things that 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 do happen correctly in the judicial system, I believe there's more that happen correctly every day every month, every year, then don't. But when you look at the injustices, the things that are not fair, what is justice? Justice is fairness. The injustices by far weigh heavier on people of color in this country than they do people that are white. Um, on the flip side of that, white people are far more readily available to buy their way or bull crap their way out of getting what they should be getting, Right? The sentences are way different for DUIs if, I mean, just Montgomery and where I used to work after that, right, are just different. And I never, I would never have to worry about that as a white man. Um, You know, I don't have to worry about, you know, what somebody's thinking about me when I pull up in the car next to them, right, at a stoplight. But you know, there are people in this world that have bought into the lie that all black people are animals. And so when a black guy pulls up with his window down and he's got some braids in his hair and some tattoos on his arm. Holy crap. That's a gang member. Well, I hate to tell you, but it's probably Lecrae who has led more people to Jesus than I will ever think of doing. Right. And if we're talking about what pastors or people of Christ look like, man, it's a Mago day. right? God made us all to be in his image. So he wanted pretty people. Right. And he made pretty people white. And he made pretty people brown, yellow, black, red. Right. And from the moment we landed on this rock that we call the United States, anybody who wasn't white was in the minority and they were pushed to the side. And um, so, yeah, we we can't even begin to, to think. What it's like to not be white. And I try to empathize, but I can't. It hurts my heart because I cannot possibly understand what it means to be somebody that's not white. So, sorry, back on my soapbox. No, uh, it's all you good, man. Question. But, hey,
1: but you could, hey, Davis, I think the point is, even though it's it's not possible to perfectly understand uh, what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes, we should certainly still try.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah so, so, you already hinted at this a little bit, Davis, but uh, one of the things I hear about being pretty much a nationwide issue, I know that, Police departments are kind of on a local level, like city or county um, or state. But uh, one of the things I hear that's pretty common across all of them is uh, a, a lack of self investigation, a lack of self reporting, covering up for your buddies, uh, and and letting you know sweep, sweeping things under the rug. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want to like press you or anything, but I, I just wanted to ask, like, what's your impression of that kind of perception that I think a lot of people have and How was your experience related to that?
1: And to be clear, we're not trying to say everybody who wears a uniform is like that. We're saying culturally that may exist to some degree in some police forces.
2: (laughs) This is a powder keg for me. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to hear it this way first, okay? Caveat. Davis was a cop. Um, In the year 2000, well, probably 99, Um, I just want to tell you this, this was me, right? So in the year 1999, 2000, I started cycling on steroids. Um, By the time I got to the good creams, um, the same stuff Mark McGuire was using. So yes, he should be in the hall of fame. Okay. Um, I'll fight you over that. So should Barry Bonds by God, (laughs) Pete Rose. Yes. I'll fight you. Uh, Right. But I was on steroids. So here I am, I'm six foot two and a half. I'm 235 pounds and I'm 8% body fat. What's that mean? That means I'm built like a truck. Um, I was huge. I, I dyed the tip of my spiky hair, blonde, right? I would put sunglasses in my hair. I would gel it into my hair. I worked night shift. I never needed my Oakleys. They just stayed in my hair. Why'd I do that? It was the persona. It was the badge. It was everything about me, right? Um, There's a song by a guy named Marilyn Manson. And uh, there's this part where he says, it's a slang, but he says, cops and queers make good looking models. And what he means by that is like transvestites put on the greatest shows. If you've never been to a transvestite show or seen it on TV, you should. It is a show. That's what cops are doing every day. They're putting on a show, right? Right and like and that's exactly what I was doing I was larger than life when I exited the car I was just like Metallica entering a stage right Um, ecstasy of gold was playing the guitars were banging and if it was a scene where I was going to have to take command by God I was taking command well that permeates all the way to the top levels right we don't want anybody to see that we're wrong we don't want anybody to see there's chinks in our armor that we're weak that we have done things wrong. You want to appear to be in control, calm, cool, collective, and awesome at all times. So, and I, I didn't understand it then. I still don't understand it now, but even then in Montgomery, Alabama, just due to the numbers of police officers. And by the way, guys, the more police officers you need, the deeper into the, (laughs) the applicant pool, you're going to have to dig. And, So I want you to know that usually what separates good applicants from bad applicants isn't can they spell yes or no, it's how they score on their psychological evals. Well, if you made a promise, I'm going to hire 65 new officers, guess how deep you're going to have to go into those psychological kickbacks. And that's not a joke, right? But what happens is you get people that do stupid things. Now, I don't mean shootings, although that might happen. But you get guys who do things like wreck cars or cuss somebody out the wrong way. I mean, you know, there's a right way to curse somebody out and let them know they're wrong. Um, You get cops who fight more than others. You get cops who were picked on in high school and they only want to exact a revenge. You get cops who do things like sneak up on a lady's house and look through her bedroom window after they'd been on a call at her house three nights before. That kind of stuff happens all the time. Mm. Cops are just people, you know, men and women. Um, But what happens is instead of firing them, they're allowed to resign for the life of me. I don't know why. Um, I'll say this from my last sheriff. Uh, If you lied to him, you were fired and he made no bones about it. And I love that about him because it did not allow you. Once you've been fired from a law enforcement job, you're probably not going somewhere else. Right. Right. Departments are less likely to hire you, but if you resign, well, you can tell them any story you want to. They're probably not going to follow up. If they're a smaller department, they're hurting for bodies, especially bodies that have been trained in an academy that's, you know, 560 hours like Montgomery was at the time or how many hours it was. They're going to hire you because they know you've been trained. You know the laws, and you do, but you also do stupid stuff. So, you know, as an example... Um, There was a guy, and I knew him, and um, I didn't really, I didn't hang around him. We worked different shifts. Second shift and third shift didn't really intersect in Montgomery. Well, he ends up resigning, and I find out later that he resigned because a woman had brought sexual abuse allegations against him. Somehow, I don't know if it was found not guilty, she dropped charges, whatever. Well, he went to work for a small town just north of Montgomery, works there for a year and a half or so, leaves there goes to work for another department. At this department, a woman brings other sexual allegations, and it turns out that what he's doing is pulling um, uh, what he considered to be good-looking girls over as they were leaving the bars, and instead of giving them DUIs or tickets, he would go find a you know somewhere to go spend time with them. And as he did this, he would take pictures of them with a Polaroid camera, and then he would keep those pictures in the trunk of his car his patrol car, right? And when you backtrack that city that he worked at in between, when he resigned, it's because a woman had brought allegations against him, right? So instead of suspending him and firing him, they just say, hey, let's make the problem go away. You want to resign? And he resigns. Now I know a female officer that was kind of the same thing, right? She resigned from one job because she'd been caught taking pills she resigned from a second job. She'd been caught taking pills. And then she resigned from a third job because she got taking pills. Now, she went down to Florida. She got a job in law enforcement and she ended up dying in a car accident, right? But the deal is she was never fired because the police department started in Montgomery with both of those people did not want to look bad, right? They don't want that on their record. But departments do things like that all the time. Like a robbery is any anytime that, In Alabama, a robbery of a person is if I stake a weapon or force, so I fake a weapon, show a weapon, or I use force to take something from you, from your person, that's now robbery, robbery of a person. Well, back in the day, and probably still today, I'm pretty sure they still do it today, if you can't identify the person, so it was a black dude wearing a black shirt and he ran west. Oh, okay. They would do what's called a robbery contact sheet. It's not a real report. It doesn't get put in the system. So the State Department of Justice doesn't see it. The Federal Bureau of Justice doesn't see it. It's not a real stat. It looks like crime is down, right? And those kind of things happen all across America. Um, They talk about it in the movie or the show The Wire, right? If you guys watch The Wire from Baltimore, they talk about that whole thing. It's you're trimming stats um, to make yourself look good. And so that other people don't see that, oh, hey, your crap really does stink, right? Your underwear is full of poop and that poop smells like poop. Well, you make it look better than it really is. They do the same thing with, with trying to find officers who are good, but man, when they're not good, they very seldom fire them. Uh, usually, at least when I was in Montgomery, the only dudes that you saw get fired, I shouldn't say dudes, but the only officers that you saw get fired were for truly egregious things that, that had already come to public light. You know, but because of that, so, these people slipped through the cracks. So.
0: Mm. Yeah. And it, it sounds like it's, it's both bad for them and it's bad for the, the potential people that they interact with down the road. Um, the question I had was, Oh, uh, Oh, can you hear
1: me? Yeah.
0: yeah, And we're back. Okay, cool. Oh uh, man. What was I going to ask about? Um, it looked amazing because oh, okay. you, that-
1: you, you leaned back. I mean, this was going to be a big question.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let, let's say that there's a, a conscientious uh, policeman who's, like, seeing something happening, just like what you're talking about, mm-hmm. uh, and sees this pattern unfolding, and they decide that they want to be, uh, you know, they want to go against the grain, so to speak, and, and report and, and out this person. Like, what, what happens to policemen uh, when they do that, in your sense?
2: You know, probably depends on the policeman that you're talking about. You know, is he somebody who's accepted, um, out now? Is he somebody who, is he somebody that is known as trustworthy on calls? Somebody that, that is known as, as being a good police officer, knowing the law and applying the law, or is he somebody that's, that's always kind of on the outside looking in? Um, (coughs) I remember, you know, we had a guy from my academy that was a pastor and, um, I'm a firm believer that if you're a pastor following Jesus, it is probably going to be a little bit hard for you to, to be a good police officer because you're going to see things and hear things that just go against you know your core, like your core beliefs. Um, as a pastor. Now you could be a great Christian, but as a pastor, man, you just carry a whole new different kind of weight. So that said, he spoke out against some things that he saw. And man, he was quickly resigning because work became absolutely unbearable for him. On the flip side, I, I know a guy that, that saw some things that he just couldn't live with anymore. And he decided to tail. To and, um, you know, the officers that, that were doing it were suspended and or fired. <coughs> and um, he was, you know, he, he wasn't lauded as a hero but he was accepted and I'm sure that he was not trusted for a long time. Um, I was quick to make friends with him because I thought it was super stand up. Again, I don't like bullies and, (laughs) you know, every workplace can have them Uh, law enforcement being full of alpha males and alpha females. um, And people scared, you know, to, to not show that they're an authority Um, can uh, can also also be kind of bullish so, uh, so I, you know, I made friends with the guy and he turned out okay. So it can go either or, I think it just depends on the officer and what it is you're speaking out against. Because I think in some places there is, um, I know there can be very septic, septic actions as a whole that are just accepted as part of daily life in said department. And if you speak out against those and you're upsetting, you're upsetting the flow of how things are and that's not good, you know?
1: So, right. So one one of the things that is, um, social media protest keeps talking about defunding the police. And I I think the the general answer for defunding the police is take money away from the police and give it to people that, uh, can get to the same outcomes, but do it in a different way. Uh, do you think defunding the police is is a good idea? Uh, or, or a bad idea and, and why?
2: Yeah, so I would need to explore more of who you're talking about is going to go to, say, a domestic not in progress. How much money is that really going to save? You know, it just depends on how much people call the police in that area. Um, but I love the idea. Simply because every cop By the way, every police, I shouldn't say every cop, I think there's a difference between police officers and cops, whole nother segment, right? But every cop and police officer hates going to what we call BS Mickey Mouse calls, right? We hate them. Now, a lot of those, not a lot, some of those can turn out to be serious calls. But for the most part, you could tell by who's calling, what time of day they're calling, you know, it's just, it's just a, it's a crap call. And I think that there's, there is a way for people to, to go to those, and you don't need as many police officers going to that type of stuff. On the flip side, um, again, cops don't want to lose their money. No, no business wants to lose their money. Um, and so if you defund the police, you're taking money from them. Are they losing deputies or, and or officers? And if they're not, what are those deputies and officers now doing with their free time? Well, they're probably aggressively patrolling what what is called, you know, broken window policing, um, which, by the way, I agree with. You know, that's where I'm. I differ from a lot of people that I speak to. You know, is I believe in broken window policing because I've seen it work. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't have to always be an arrest, but broken window policing makes sense to me. Um, the theory of it, anyway. And um,
0: can you can you tell us the, just the theory of it, real quick? Yeah.
2: So, broken window policing is if you stop the broken windows, the kids throwing rocks, the guys—I hate to, to use this term—but you know, Eric Gardner, the guys selling cigarettes on the street, then you'll stop the people who are you know dealing small amounts of marijuana on the street. So now you're going to stop the crack being dealt on the street, and you kind of. You know, if you put all the petty stuff down, then the big stuff doesn't happen as much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've seen it work and I've seen it not work. I think there's a way to do it <coughs> because that makes sense. But here's the deal. As long as there are human beings on the face of the planet, right? As long as, as, long as people are people, you're always going to have people who are um, poorer than others. Some of those people are going to be there by choice. As long as people are just like me, they're always going to look for a way to escape how they feel about themselves. So they're going to turn to narcotics and or alcohol, which means they're not going to be able to keep a steady job, which means they're not going to be able to have money. So now they got to find money another way. They're probably going going to commit crime, right? What's the oldest job in the world, right? It's prostitution, supposedly. Um, and if it's you know, where there's prostitutes, there's gonna be illicit drugs. Where there's illicit drugs, there's gonna be pickpockets. So the idea is to stamp down the little stuff and it keeps the big stuff kind of at a bay. It makes sense, right? Um that's broken window mm. policing, you know, in layman's terms. <laughs> I'm sure okay. some academic could tell you more, but I'm I'm not that dude.
0: No, that, that was great. Thanks. Now what I, were we talking about? I feel about? like I interrupted you though. No, no, no. Y- yeah, you were saying Something. Oh, man. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Save us, Paul. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm going to take us a different direction. You you mentioned uh, Eric Gardner. And so he was selling uh, cigarettes illegally, but uh, there there's a term that the military uses. It's escaping me now. But essentially, the, the level of force you bring should be equal to the, the, the thing that you're trying to prevent. Yeah. Uh, and, and the reaction from the police force in the air garter situation seemed to be just too much over the top. Yeah. There had to be 10 other ways to stop that without it getting to that point.
2: You know, I got to tell you guys, you know, this is me again, bearing my soul. I need to ask forgiveness of any person of color who's ever been arrested by force on this show. Now they're listening. Now, some people deserve it. Some people just fight alcohol, whatever in their bones, you know, nobody in America, we don't want to go to jail. We don't want to be told what to do. I get it. And when I first watched the Eric Gardner thing go down, um, I was, again, staunch conservative. I was a police officer and I was like, that fool could breathe. He had an underlying heart condition. Well, now I'm totally on the side that, that you know, you're bringing up, Paul, where, Why were there five or six officers to go take this one dude down for selling a freaking cigarette, a cigarette? Really? How many of you smoke? How many of you had cigarettes in your own freaking pocket and this dude's selling a cigarette and we're going to go throw them to the ground. Now that sounds a lot like a Monday morning quarterbacking and I am, you know, but I've seen other things on TVs where, um, I I would like to believe that I was part of a a pretty good tactical squad who was, who had a head about their shoulders, especially in the last place I worked. But, um, you know, I've seen officers gang up four or five deep to go into a house to get a guy or to go just to a domestic. And it's pretty much because the guy is known to fight. But he wasn't fighting then, right? His old lady was just calling on him because she knew the police would come. So he was either one, going to have to leave or two, he had some, you know, bullcrap warrant. But we're sending five guys in there. Right. And by the way, a lot of times I'd watch those departments. They weren't going in there to ask questions and investigate. They were like, well, Davis is fighting with his old lady again. He's got that one warrant. Let's go put him in jail. And then, you know, fights on. (laughs) And yeah, if you bring five guys in my house, put me in jail, and i I really do think that that I haven't done anything wrong, you're probably not going to put me in handcuffs without a little bit of a struggle at least. And um, yeah, I'm with you. like how much force was needed for a dude with a cigarette? Was it worth his life? Absolutely not. Um, you know, And then I've seen some other shootings or, or, or incidents that have happened in law enforcement that the rest of the world saw as as you know blatant you know lynchings is, is the word we're using. And I look at it from a a law enforcement point of view and go, you know, I would have done the same thing. So before you crucify all those cops, remember I was one and I, you're talking to a guy, I would have done the same thing. Um, which allows me to have a, a really unique perspective with people. And, um, and it's, you know, we've had some fun conversations and, and, um, I've definitely had my life changed and I hope that I've also helped you know, people who are, are really outspoken against law enforcement see it as it's not always it's not always as bad as it looks, you know.
0: What, one of the so. things I'm I'm really enjoying about this conversation is that you really give balanced answers. You always say kind of one side of it and you go on the flip side and then you, you give the other half of it. Uh, so it's been really cool. Um,
1: but uh, well, you know what I that gives to you, ask do you about know, Hey, the, do you know what that gives you, Daniel? That What's gives that? you the, the better answer in the middle, typically.
0: <laughs> yeah, or it's, it's just a really cool way to, to kind of show the, uh, the truth that can show up on on both sides. Um, yeah, that's a way to put it. So I've heard that, you know, the, with the defund the police thing, a lot of people say a lot of these problems can be solved by social workers. I'm not sure exactly what you meant by Mickey Mouse calls, but I'm assuming those are types of calls that, that can be handled without a gun, uh, relatively peacefully. Uh, You know, what is the difference, do you think, between a social worker and a police officer? Like what kind of situations would need a police officer instead of somebody without a gun?
2: Yeah. So. Ongoing domestic, you know, he just ran out the door or both parties on scene or, you know, and escalate up from there. Definitely somebody with a gun and a badge and a bulletproof vest because domestics are absolutely a horrible place to go.
0: Uh, so domestic you mean like domestic abuse domestic violence any it
2: doesn't have to be domestic violence if one party calls on the other party then I would say even if they haven't hit each other and they say I just want somebody to show up and tell him to go home well you've called I can't make him go somewhere else if he lives there but I do have to come out and make sure that that there is no physical abuse going either way um, and a lot of times those because they're such an emotional call um, those can turn ugly really quick. So I think a law enforcement officer should go to that. Now, when you call on Tuesday because you're already cut your tires on Saturday, that shouldn't be somebody with a badge and a gun and a, a marked car with lights on top of it going to that call. Uh, matter of fact, I don't even think we should go to that call. Um, I don't even, you know what I mean? Like if it's been four days, you're only reporting because you're pissed off because he hasn't, you know, he hasn't brought you or she hasn't brought your, your money that she promised. Um, I use that scenario because I once had a girlfriend cut the tires on my truck. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Dang. Yeah. 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 Um, You know, man, there's so many calls, but like, and, and by the way, a lot of departments, I know in the South I've seen this, like citizens on patrol, there'll be like retired business people who put on a uniform and they just ride around and report things that they see. Trees in the roadway, they help direct traffic at accident scenes, and they go to those calls and do the initial reports for things like, you know, somebody broke into my house. Well, have you been in a house? No. Okay, let's send somebody with a gun. Have you been in your house? Yes, I've been in my house. I've been here for 30 minutes. There's nobody here. And I have a list of all the things stolen. Okay, we're going to send an old man over there to take you know, take the report, that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, there's a lot of things that law enforcement does that people don't think about until they need law enforcement. We used to joke all the time, you get pissed off when you see a deputy flying at 100 miles an hour until it's you who called the police and you're trying to figure out what took us so long to get there. Right. All right. If the cops are just driving by your house, God, why do the deputies drive so damn fast. Hey, somebody hit my mailbox last night. They threw their dog out the window and it hit my mailbox. Okay. What took you so long to get here? It was not an emergency call. Like, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, mm. but there's lots of things that, that officers go to, by the way, that, that only an officer could do that only that authority that comes with a badge and oh man that's a that's a hot word the authority that comes with a badge but there is an authority that comes with being the quote-unquote professional you should know the law and how to apply it and um, there's lots of things that that only a deputy would be able to handle and handle correctly and um you know define it really go ahead
0: Sorry. No, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you weren't done yet. Go ahead. Yeah. So
2: just real quick, a story, right? Love story time. Um, I went to a call one night and it's it's two couples fighting over boundary lines with an easement going down to a lake. Now, if you're rich and you're white and you live on the lake, it's yours. This is your kingdom. And they have been fighting over this property line for years and they had been getting Each one had been getting different surveys um, done. And so when Paul would get his survey done, Daniel would go pull the stakes up. So then Daniel would get a survey done and Paul would go pull the stakes up. Now, Um, should there be a deputy out there on that call? Does that sound like something a deputy should go do? No. But guess what happened five minutes before I got there? Mm. One old man went and got his shotgun and fired it out across the lake, across the house of the other house or across the roof line of the other house. Well, now does Paul, who's retired because his podcast was so successful, now he's just citizens on patrol. Should Paul be out there doing this call? No, Paul's pooped his pants because somebody has shot a shotgun. So now the deputy has to go anyway. So it's a really like, again, Somebody's going to have to break this down for me. What do you mean by defund the police? And I need absolute clear parameters. There can't be gray areas for a dispatcher. A dispatcher has a hard enough job. Um, the smaller the unit, so now they're you know the more jobs that they have to do, the harder their job is. Uh, that's a job I wouldn't want. Being a deputy is easy. Being a dispatcher is not. So.
1: Um, Yeah, I I I, I've never been either, but I think uh, your dispatcher comment is mostly like day to day. It's a really hard job. Deputy's job is hard in situations, but they don't happen every single day. No, no. Yeah, Uh, that's a great uh, story you just told. By the way, yeah, Uh, I probably would have pooped my pants if I was the old man in that scenario.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can't. I can't wait till Paul and I are so successful getting into property disputes like that right. yeah yeah and we're going to live next to each other
1: yeah that's yeah. not going to happen yeah, yeah on that's a lake. not going to happen yeah <laughs> on, on, a, on a lake in alabama i think yeah, yeah. <laughs> good times so uh davis yeah. I, I know you've heard this question a million times well i, I say a million three or four times cuz you listen to three or four podcasts so the question we at, you we should have asked all three or four of those folks uh, and since you were a marine i think daniel and i know what the answer is but you're 25 no responsibilities but yourself, comedy or military.
2: So you're wrong because I would have already been out of
1: the military.
2: <laughs> so, so the I, question's I move. probably would have tried uh, stand-up comedy. Uh, Listen, yeah. I grew up watching Dennis oh, Leary. Oh, man. And I grew up watching Dennis Leary, who was like – he was funny back in the day. Um, <clears throat> I loved the A&E channel because they had Evening at the Improv. And, um, I always wanted, I've always wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Thankfully, I know that I'm not that funny. Um, I, I can make people giggle, but I can never stand there night after night. Um, you know, and just do it for a living. And I couldn't imagine the peanuts those dudes get paid to do that
1: to start with, especially, right. Oh my
2: gosh. Like, wait, I have to go to the veterans home again. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or the local what is it uh the local vfw again with all six drunks ah. <laughs> i'd rather just stick a pencil in my ear and slam it
1: <laughs> oh man but you, you would choose that so you, you would have done the marine corps before you turn 25 and then do stand up maybe for oh, yeah. a little bit yeah and if you could talk about your time <laughs> in the marine corps it's pretty x-rated so yeah it's pretty funny
2: stuff i mean it's not like marines are grown-ups
1: yeah, th- there's we're, a lot of material there. There's uh, no- we
2: were the most immature people I know by far. So, yeah.
1: Hey, let, let me, um, I actually have a real thought here that may be useful around pol- this whole question of policing or defunding the police. Yeah. And this is not d- defunding. I don't know how the money works out here. But a dispatchers' job is to figure out who should go uh, to what. And it's usually based on The kind of unit that needs to respond or is it just a deputy that needs to respond uh and it's i imagine you tell me davis it's it's whoever's closest they're trying to figure that those logistics Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. Um, but i I think there's something to your old old guy uh, notion where there's clear i don't need somebody with a pistol going to well in some cases i don't need to respond at all other cases Mm -hmm. i need the old man without the pistol other cases i clearly need somebody who is trained at dealing with potentially violent situations, and then there's a bunch of gray between the old guy and the police officer with a gun. Okay, great. Take all that gray and default it to the police officer because you just don't know how it's going to turn out. Yeah, There's so a chance then, that it goes good or bad, so great. Let's let's send the police officer. Yeah, I think there's a place for the older guy or gal oh, to do yeah. the, the nonviolent work. I think there's something absolutely to that. Oh,
2: yeah. I just... There's more gray than there is clearly defined. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah well, and so we have to we have to work on those definitions yeah, for sure. Like what's but, the definition? Yep. Yeah, but w- even in a perfectly defined world, you're still going to have some gray that exists just because every situation is different. But yeah. I think I think police departments, I think local governments, whether it's county or cities or towns, they they need to do some real serious thinking about how they can come up with those definitions and mm-hmm. then execute against mm-hmm. those definitions. Absolutely. So,
0: yeah. All right. I, I think that the that America is a unique breed as well because we're the most heavily armed country like ever, and there are guns everywhere. And that's always something, you know, that shotgun example that you gave, that's an example of a situation that's otherwise peaceful and probably would be peaceful uh, turning very violent very quickly just with one gun in the picture. So it's, I think you're right that, you know, there's gotta be a, a way to be able to react when, uh, situations escalate, which in the South and all across the country, really, uh, they, they certainly can. Um, yeah.
1: So Davis, tell us what you're up to these days.
2: Wow. So, um, I'm a CrossFit level two certified trainer. So I work at a local gym in Shambly, Georgia. Uh, people ask me, what do you do Davis? And I say, I strive to make people better than they were yesterday. That's my short definition the long definition is I lead a small group through our church uh, here in Atlanta, make a church called victory. I coach CrossFit. I have conversations, you know, based around race relations and racial reconciliation. I talk to people all the time about discipleship about, you know, how do we apply the Bible to our lives as, as husbands, as, as fathers, as brothers, right. Being a brother of one another, because I grew up the son of, of, parents who loved me who were christians but man i had no idea what it meant to be a husband or to be a dad even though my son turned out great that was i don't even know what that was um well really i do i was i i raised my son to not be me and it worked because i was terrified of me and i didn't like me Mm -hmm. i was very ashamed of who i was so now i spend my time doing that man that's what i do i um i'm Looking at at writing a book with my wife um, about my sexual addiction and, and her using sex as a tool. Both of us were very broken people before we came to faith. And um we want to write a book for couples um, about forgiveness, not just forgiveness um, of Jesus for us and our sins, but uh forgiveness for each other. It's possible, right? It's possible for us to coexist after the horrible things that I did to her in our marriage. Uh, my unfaithfulness record is by far and away something of shame. It is absolutely shameful. And so I want to help men do that. I want to help men be better followers of Jesus by loving people well. And that's what I strive to do, guys. I, I just strive to love people well. So if that's talking about law enforcement and trying to bring clarity to the picture, that's why I tell both sides of the story, Daniel, um, or race relations, which... I'm part of a leadership cohort called One Race. There's a, a group in Atlanta called One Race. Um, I can hook you guys up with them, by the way. Phenomenal people, and uh, and worthy of of telling that story and what they did, um, you know. And so I'm I'm part of that because I believe in it. I believe that that we are meant, if we're going to see healing. Daniel asked me earlier, what's what's the possibilities right now in this moment? That was just about law enforcement, right? But I think that we as America. Um, starting a church, if we want to, can be um, the healing process, right? We can we can really put some salve on the on the healing process. We can be the aloe vera to a really bad sunburn um, by by learning what the real story is. And and you don't have to know every fact, right? But you do have to acknowledge, Paul. You you and I talked about this with with what happened at work with your coworker, and and I'm sure you've talked about it on your podcast before, but. By learning a little bit of the story and owning our part of it, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm taking account for, oh, I did this, or even my family did this, but just saying, wow, that's really horrible. And I'm sorry that that happened. And then helping to change the story by talking about it. It's going to take millions and millions of conversations to make things different. We're trying to erase, or not erase, but we're trying to change the narrative in the last 60 years for something that took 450 years to build. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, my son's generation and his children's generation are going to be the ones that really make a difference. And um, so that's what I'm doing now, man. I'm just making inroads and loving people well and hopefully making folks better than they were yesterday.
0: I think that's a, a great title for the, the podcast is know the story, own the story, change the story. And uh, I think that your mission is excellent and your, and your message is powerful, uh, Davis. So I really appreciate oh, you having shared it.
1: I I agree with everything he just said, and I'm so happy that we brought Latoya on, who led us to Cody, who led us to you.
2: Yeah, well, you know, what started my thing with Cody was I started talking about what's your plans for 2020, and and we're starting. I'm supposed to have a meeting this week. Um, I'm starting a ministry, a nonprofit that's going to bring CrossFit intersecting with inner city kids, particularly Latino kids um, who otherwise couldn't afford it, wouldn't know it. They're just sitting at home. They're homeschooling, maybe. Maybe they're not, but somehow I'm going to get them um, in the realm of fitness where they can see positive role models. They can receive positive self-image by, by obtaining goals on their own and achieving things. And then from there, they um, hopefully can grow and, and learn that, that they, are, they are worthy people. Because I think being Latino in America right now, you probably feel a little bit worse than, than any other color person. Just based on, uh, you know, the last couple of years news cycles. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's my goal for for yep. you know the next month. Start that off. So.
1: Well, everything is this, you're, everything you're involved in is uh, super positive and meant to help your fellow man. So, I wish you the best of luck in all that. Oh, thank you. I love what you guys are doing. Yeah. Is it? Is, hey, let him say Dave, nice is things it gonna about be us. Like a Daniel, let him say nice things it, about us. He was about to say nice. Okay. Things okay. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're good.
0: No, I just wanted to know if it's going to be a. Um, if there's going to be a name for your ministry, a if it's going to be a nonprofit, anything like that?
2: We, it will be nonprofit. We have not come up with a name yet. Uh, we've tossed a bunch around. Um, and like one of the things, my wife, my wife just lost her job. <laughs> oh. uh, COVID got her, and she was in corporate America. So we are looking at, at um, you know, are we going to start our own gym or are we going to put this ministry inside somebody else's gym? So there's some details we have to work out. But the idea is to just get underserved kids who would not normally know what healthy lifestyle choices and working out looks like into a place where they can be. And hopefully one day it grows. Like it's a place for them to come do homework. You know, I want to be the guy that, that you can tell, Hey, these people are bullying me around the corner. That doesn't mean I'm going to put brass knuckles on and, and go take care of it. It'd be nice. I can't do it. Um, but I want to be a safe haven for people. Um, I, w- I want to be that place that they can go to. So by the way, Daniel, your sister encouraged me. Um, I'm, you know, homeschooling my daughter, and she has ADHD, dyslexia, and learning about the Montessori way. I was entranced listening to it, and I was like, "Dude, I <laughs> unlocked a bunch of things for me in helping me with my own daughter." So, you guys don't even know how transformative your podcast is for people.
1: Davis, we just need you to listen to all of them, man. (laughs) That's huge, man. Yeah, I
0: I really, I'm glad it helped. I'm gonna go to my sister right now and tell her that uh, that what you what you
1: just said. Yeah, no, she'll love that. That's great. That's awesome. Well, hey, Davis, you kind of teased uh, round two with us. We're we're gonna do that at some point. It may make sense that when you're on the precipice of uh, releasing your book, uh, or sooner, we'll bring you back on and uh, we can talk about your experiences with uh, with sex addiction and everything that comes with yeah. that.
2: I'm, I might even pull a Chris Young and just, you know, I might drop the, the, the knowledge on you with bringing my old lady because she knows, I shouldn't call that, she's going to kick my
1: butt. No, <laughs> listen, my, my wife. wonderful lady will call her.
2: Yes, my wife is a phenomenal person um, in so many ways, other than being an, an Auburn grad and rooting for the Tigers. But other than mm-hmm. that, um, <laughs> you know, I'll forgive her. So Roll Tide. but no i appreciate you guys having me on um i love to 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 share my story and just share my heart
0: if you enjoyed this episode feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using to share your thoughts head over to our website at podso1.io and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly thanks for listening